The following episode was recorded in front of a live audience in the New Zealand Warbirds hangar at Ardmore Airport on the 28th of September 2014. We're very grateful to the New Zealand Warbirds Association for allowing us to hold a Wings Over New Zealand forum meet in their hangar. Because it was in a large hangar, the acoustics were not perfect and unfortunately there's a little bit of background noise in this recording. I do apologise that the sound recording is not perfect. The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from WarbirdRadio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at WarbirdRadio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plane Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at planecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi Warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings of New Zealand show. I'm your host Dave Homewood. In this episode, another instalment from the forum meet at the New Zealand Warbirds hangar, we hear from Mark Halliwell. Mark was a pilot in the Royal New Zealand Air Force and he's going to tell us about flying the McDonnell Douglas Skyhawk. Oh, hello everybody, um, I'm Mark Halliwell. I'm one of Warbirds uh, Skyhawk pilots or knuckleheads as we were affectionately known. I had a relatively uh, short career in the Air Force from 1978 until 1985. Um, 14 Squadron from 1882 uh, and then uh, 75 Squadron until uh, uh, 1985 when uh, I left to join New Zealand. Remember, 
My memory isn't as sharp as it was 34 years ago, but I've heard the Skyhawks, so apologies in advance for anything you may pick up that uh, might be inaccurate, hopefully not. Um, we have your answer questions later, and uh, again, um, anybody here who worked on them uh, at all? I know there's a few flyers around here, so I've uh, told them to keep their mouths shut if they hear anything wrong. Brandon? Um, so how did the Skyhawks come to be? In the early 1950s, uh, the US Navy required a new uh, carrier aircraft, and they wanted it to weigh less than 15,000 pounds, could deliver a 4,000 pound payload at 500 uh, miles per hour, and have a 400 nautical mile radius. And most importantly, it needed to uh, cost less than a million US dollars per aircraft. Um, Gustav Henry Ed Heinemann um, took up the challenge. Uh, he lived from 1908 to 1991, died when he was 83. And two years later, the first prototype, the, uh, well that's him there uh, after a, uh, a Skyhawk ride, um, two years later, the prototype, which is the XA4D1, made its first flight. It was powered by a Curtis Wright J65 uh, engine of about 7,200 pounds thrust, and that was a license for Armstrong Sidley uh, Sapphire engine. As it turned out, many of those uh, require, initial requirements were exceeded. The speed was faster, and the first 500 aircraft delivered at a cost of uh, 860,000 US, US dollars each. In addition, Heinemann was able to save weight uh, by designing a small aircraft with a wingspan of uh, 27 and a half feet, and he, which eliminated the need for the folding wings of other carrier-based aircraft. And the Delta Plan wing form meant that uh, a single unit wing could uh, incorporate a wet wing, and that uh, had uh, 560 gallons of fuel in it, as well as a 240-gallon fuel tank behind the pilot. That resulted in a reduction in weight and uh, lots of less fuel pipes and valves. Heinemann was a design genius, and over his uh, six decades of designing, he designed uh, at least 20 fighter, or fighter and bomber aircraft. The first one was Douglas Dauntless, a dive bomber. Many people think that was the best uh, bomber that uh, ever was built. Uh, pilots called it the uh, slow but, it's an SDB, slow but deadly. And uh, Marine pilots called it the speed, speed BD. The next one was the uh, Douglas Sky Raider, great to carry uh, great loads of ordnance. Long distances. Another one was Sky Street, which is a uh, jet research aeroplane capable of an 18G loading. It uh, also registered a world speed record of 650 miles per hour. The next one was another one he designed, the Sky Rocket. It was the first airplane to reach twice the speed of sound and uh, achieved a record altitude of 83,000 feet. The uh, F3D Sky Knight was a straight-wing jet night fighter, a first carrier-based uh, night fighter. And following on from that, the uh, F4 Sky Ray, the F5D Sky Lancer jet interceptor, and the uh, A3D Sky, Sky Warrior heavy attack bomber. Those had a multitude of uh, capabilities, and the air, air refueling was one of them. Uh, it also uh, was affectionately known by the uh, Fleet pilots that had no ejection seats called the A3D, all three dead. And people that didn't fly it um, called it the whale. Um, back to the subject in hand. Uh, flight testing of the prototype showed airframe busting at uh, various speeds, so that distinctive uh, sugar cone tail cover was put on, and that uh, alleviated that. And also, uh, even small metal tabs on the upward uh, area of the wing, uh, vortex generators. Uh, 
improved lift by uh, eliminating turbulence. On um, 1955, a new world speed record was set by Skyhawk at uh, 300 feet AGL around the close course at Edwards Air Force Base um, of uh, 695 miles per hour. The previous record was held by an F-86 Sabre and it was the first time that uh, that record had been uh, achieved by an attack aircraft rather than a fighter. Uh, due to its small size, the uh, Skyhawk was called, uh, had a, a few unofficial nicknames. One was the Tinker Toy Bomber, another one was the Bantam Bomber, uh, the Scooter, which you probably uh, know, and of course the most uh, well-known one, Heinemann's Hot Rod. In New Zealand, uh, we affectionately called the uh, single-seater the model and plain old T-Bird for the, uh, the twin-seater. The name Skyhawk came from adding uh, the word sky, which uh, Douglas uh, added to the start of all its post-World War II aircraft, and the name Hawk, which was the unit insignia of the first uh, squadron to receive it uh, um, in operations, which was VA-72. As it was a carrier, designed to be a carrier-based aircraft, uh, Heinemann uh, designed it without self-start capability, and it didn't have a battery, so it needed uh, a ground huffer and ground equipment to get it going. And as the RNZAF found out, uh, operations away from home base required a fair bit of uh, logistical support, and uh, that's why the aircraft was operated normally only out of Fenerbahce and Ahakia. And I did see a picture of a, of a wing-mounted uh, pod, which had a, a GTC and uh, starter unit in it, but I can, I can find no uh, other reference to that, so, and where they went, I have no idea. Skyhawk's primary role in the US Navy was to deliver a single nuclear bomb, and uh, that posed problems in, in delivery and the accuracy of it, because uh, at, at the time, uh, planes had to get fairly close to the target, and uh, it also had a very basic onboard weapon system, and uh, in those days, the design for the uh, uh, Bombing pattern would be the pilot would pull up to in a, an Elman loop, let the bomb go, climb to 12,000 feet and then drop down while well, he'd uh, continue his uh, uh, loop and, and scoot away. And uh, nine times out of ten, they thought that they'd still be caught in the uh, bomb shockway. The instrument layout of the uh, first A4 was very basic, didn't lend well to instrument flying or night flying because the instruments were at a haphazard and very hard to see pattern. It led to a number of improvements later on. Um, main addition, which I'll show you later, the AJNV 3A um, full attitude indicator, which we really love, and that, uh, I'll discuss that later. We didn't have a weapons aiming computer either in our A4s. Due to State Department restrictions, uh, never arrived with one, and we just had to rely on an um, old Mark von Eibel's and fixed uh, gun sight of the early 50s Skyhawks. These uh, State Department restrictions continued right up until when the Skyhawks were disposed of. They took out all the uh, new weapons uh, delivery computers, they took out the engines and flight control components, and uh, the uh, instructions were these aircraft are never to fly again. Uh, development of the uh, type continued with the introduction of the Buddy Store because it was a carrier-based aircraft and because it was so small, they had to uh, put the uh, refueling store outside. Uh, Heinemann's ingenuity also uh, ensured that that was free from the aircraft's power sources. And you can see the propeller on the front. That drove the uh, hose reel and the uh, fuel pumps. Here you can refuel the globe. Oh, sorry, there's another picture of uh, the body store. Um, 
coming back into uh, refueling the basket. Now the basket was very, very small and uh, to actually get into it, you didn't concentrate on the probe, you looked at out of your peripheral vision, because if you uh, looked at the probe, the aeroplane would be seen to be rotating around the, that, that axis and it looked extremely funny from uh, the side. So uh, you just lined up on the, uh, seat of, on the side tank there and, and just drove your uh, probe into it. Um, around the basket was also um, lights for night uh, tanking and if you're number four or number five in the sequence um, it was normally only one or two left, it made it very hard because uh, the previous guys had been poking at it and, and uh, bashing all the bulbs out. Um, there's the uh, first of uh, the straight probes, uh, they came and uh, they were changed to a bent probe in 19... Uh, 73. They initially found that uh, if there was a problem with the uh, hose or uh, the shuttle valve and the tank failed, fuel would spew out and go straight down the intake. And as can be seen by this photo, um, Fred Kinvig here with a basket malfunction, the bent probe um, allowed the fuel to be directed around the side of the uh, engineer intake and uh, thus not causing problems. And for a, a little while in uh, while they still had straight probes, um, air to air refuelling was, uh, was prohibited. A Skyhawk was produced uh, for 25 years, 1954 to 1979. The two seat version started in 1965. Um, engine thrust started out at 7,000 pounds, it increased to 9,300 pounds with our A4K models, and then the later models, uh, 11,800 pounds uh, in the 408 uh, engine. Um, aircraft built after 1970. Um, the New Zealand Purchase, uh, 1965, they discussed uh, replacing the Canberra and there were aircraft undergoing evaluation of the Phantom, the A7 Corsair, the Mirage, F5 Freedom Fighter, one I didn't know, the F104 Starfighter, and uh, the F111 and of course the Skyhawk. The Phantom uh, was the RNZF's um, primary uh, choice but it was deemed too expensive at $2.1 million each. Um, A4 wasn't in the running at that stage, and uh, the contenders were basically the Mirage and the uh, F5 Freedom Fighter. Um, both those had inferior range and capability, and the Aussies uh, started having a few crashes, which made uh, a few, put up a few eyebrows in uh, New Zealand. Um, 16, uh, well, six Phantoms could be bought for the same price as about uh, it was about 15 or 16 F5, so uh, you know, despite that, the uh, RNG asked initially to purchase 16 Phantoms for 19 million pounds. Um, widely debated over two years, decimal currency came in and the Cabinet's Defence Committee allocated 20 million dollars for new combat aircraft. Um, currency devalued, and that uh, meant that only seven Phantoms or 14 Skyhawks could be purchased, so you can imagine what uh, um, what was being uh, talked about in the, in the, in the Air Force. And uh, I think our Canberra pilots disappeared at the moment, but uh, the, the Canberra pilots at the time uh, then began lobbying and saying that the Hawker Sidley uh, Buccaneer would be a perfect replacement because that was a uh, two-seat, two-engine uh, bomber aircraft, and of course that's what they'd been used to flying with, a navigator and that. Despite Treasury caution, around about uh, 1968, uh, purchased 14 Skyhawks, 
So a team went across to assess them and uh, Air Commodore Frank Gill recommended uh, buying 18. Uh, along with uh, the rescue area of Hakia and uh, Fanua Bay, overhaul facility at Woodburn, and a re well, I've said a rescue gear, and the in infrastructure um, purchase price was $24.5 million. Um, our Skyhawk Skyhawks came fitted with a drag chute, a, a VHF radio, the others uh, only had a UHF, and uh, the ability to carry the A9 Sidewinder missile. It also had, uh, or it was missing the top secret ECM, electronic countermeasures and uh, nav bombing computer, which was normally stored in the hump, um, again due to US State Department restrictions. However, we did find that uh, the hump was very uh, useful um, for storing your deployment kit and the occasional uh, cask of wine or two or beer on your deployments, which made it nice and cold when you uh, exited the aircraft. Ground crew um, went across in 1969 for training in Florida at uh, Cecil Field, and then uh, 10 pilots uh, followed them uh, January the following year. Uh, Miss those ones. Uh, first, uh, the aircraft were put together at uh, Long Beach at the Douglas factory, transported up to uh, Palmdale, and uh, flying out to uh, Florida. First three initially by uh, USAF, uh, sorry, uh, US Navy pilots. And on the first transit, uh, one of those pilots uh, perceived a slight engine issue and he considered ejecting, and which would have been disastrous for the Air Force because uh, they would have been officially handed over. Uh, consequently, the rest of uh, the transits were done by New Zealand uh, pilots. <laughs> um, training, well, we never did this, but uh, they got some ejection uh, seat training and uh, Went up in the ejection simulator there. Um, all the weapons training, ground training, uh, water survival, and uh, formation, air to air refueling, everything you'd expect uh, to know from the Skyhawk operations of the instructors on the type. Um, first Skyhawk conversion course, uh, VA 44. Um, our own uh, founder, Trevor Bland, and Woolworths founder, Trevor Bland's there, seven from the right. He's actually the one sitting down looking away from everybody. Receiving training at VA-44 at the same time were pilots from the Argentinian Air Force and no doubt uh, some 12 years later those pilots would have been uh, in combat against the British at the Falkland Islands. Um, we also had squadron leader Ross Donaldson at uh, Cecil Field undergoing instructor training. He was on exchange. Um, very shortly after graduating off his course, he suffered a bird strike while he was in the back seat of a T-bird. Um, he was blinded and couldn't communicate with the front seat student, so he ejected and uh, landed safely. The student, to his uh, credit, also landed the aircraft safely with minus the canopy and the back seater. Um, severe injuries to Ross Donaldson's uh, eyes uh, meant that he could no longer be a Skywalk instructor. The arrival into New Zealand, New Zealand aircraft were flown to San Diego and then they uh, came on the USS Okinawa to Auckland. That was on its way to Vietnam. A couple of days out of Auckland, um, the ship encountered a very severe storm and the captain was uh, considering chopping the uh, hold downs and pushing the aircraft over the side um, to lighten the load because the, the uh, carrier was rolling so uh, severely. Luckily that didn't happen, and uh, they were unloaded in Auckland 
May, 17th of May 1970. And then towed by road to uh, Fanua Point Chevalier on the northwestern roadway, a distance of uh, 24 kilometres. That took a little over four hours. A group of noisy uh, anti-war, anti-Vietnam war protesters uh, sat in the middle of the road around about the Point Chev area and uh, to uh, disrupt the uh, transit. And a couple of those uh, became very well-known politicians, and one of them in particular was responsible for the demise of the uh, Air Combat Force, and I think you'll know who she was. <laughs> and around the country fly past in 1970, um, that fostered my interest in flying. I was 11 years old, and I said to myself, that's what I want to do, and uh, um, spent a lot of time at school working towards my flying licenses, and. Uh, and uh, did achieve that in uh, 1982. A few milestones around the time. Trevor Bland broke the sound barrier over a Harker in 1970, which was the first for an aircraft, RNZ uh, aircraft, and the uh, first time an emergency arrested landing was carried out at, uh, in, at a Harker was by uh, Graham Bethel, another Warbirds pilot and owner of the P-51 Mustang there. There's a picture of uh, a very dapper Graham there on the right-hand side, and also next to him, uh, Stu Boyce, the instructor at the time. Uh, Stu was a, uh, he's presently in Tauranga, works at uh, the museum there, very capable pilot. He was base commander of Ahaki when I was there, and he always come across looking for a, uh, a flight in the Skywalk, and we'd offer, offer it to him, of course. And uh, we'd always say, Sir, would you uh, like to uh, lead, the, lead the formation, and of course, He'd say, no, just put me at number four. And he actually uh, was exceedingly good at weapons and uh, kept us bog rats on our toes. He had a heck of a, heck of a job uh, beating him in the, the weapons scores. The flying kit that we uh, used can be seen very well in this um, picture. Um, first of all, it was an Omex flying suit, uh, fire resistant. Under that, uh, many of us wore a full length uh, cotton or woolen long job. Um, extra fire protection and also uh, gives a bit of warmth that we did have to eject um, in inhospitable terrain. I actually wore mine all year round, my long, all in long johns, made it very uncomfortable up in the tropics. Um, the air conditioning system of the A4 wasn't particularly good. Over that, on the bottom half was the G-suit which inflated to push air into your uh, lower extremities to uh, reduce the blood flow away from your heart and, and head. On top of that, the uh, combined torso harness which connected you to the uh, aircraft and the parachute and uh, inside that was a uh, survival radio and a knife for cutting the uh, shrouds. Um, finishing that off, uh, well sorry, the um, white SPH-4 helmet, fiberglass helmet, much heavier than the uh, very lightweight Kevlar ones that are used by fighter pilots today. That, that weighed two and a half kilos, because I weighed mine. And, um, the, uh, Kevlar ones weigh one and a half kilos. Now that, that equated to, if you're pulling 4G, 30 kilos of weight straining on your neck muscles. It became very sore after a weapon sortie or um, ACM sustained turn. And I can tell you that uh, 30 kilos is about the same weight as a fully laden air hostess's suitcase after she's had a big shopping trip in LA. And I know that from experience because I live with one. <laughs> Uh, follow, finishing off that with standard flying gloves and steel cap boots 
and the steel cap boots were because, to protect your toes from getting uh, smashed as you ejected because of the uh, canopy room was made of uh, steel. Also, I must uh, comment that uh, Skyhawk pilots had to be measured from here to here, or supposed to be measured from here to here, because there's a leg length for the same reason. The canopy bow um, was such that uh, the way the seat came out of the aircraft, if your legs were too long, there's a possibility of smashing your knees as you ejected. Um, that wasn't, wouldn't have been a particularly good uh, idea in a survival situation. And there's a couple of uh, our Warbirds members um, who are particularly long-legged, and I think they must have missed the, uh, missed the measure somehow. Um, breathing oxygen supplied by a liquid oxygen system in the back of the aircraft. Very dangerous, needed lots of special equipment and handling. Um, that was up in the uh, bay behind, underneath the engine. Um, the New Zealand Skyhawks were later converted to a gaseous system. Um, the Australian ones retained their 100% uh, um, uh, system and that made uh, breathing very dry because pure oxygen is, uh, doesn't have any moisture, whereas the EMIC system uh, was, was and it doesn't. And uh, we, we actually preferred uh, flying in the EMIC system. The Escapac uh, ejection seat, which I don't have a picture of, I'm afraid, was a uh, zero-zero seat, which meant that you didn't have to have any speed or any altitude for it to work because it was designed for uh, carrier operations, and uh, it meant that the guy could be uh, in the parachute under canvas about three seconds after pulling the handle. But it did, it uh, was able to achieve this by having little lead balls on the parachute visors. These were explosively uh, shot out as the parachute opened. And uh, the only disadvantage with that was if you ejected at high speed, there's a good possibility of sustaining some serious uh, damage to your body from the, the shock of the parachute opening. So our procedure was to slow down as much as possible and uh, eject as slow as possible. The um, Strikemaster seat was a 0.90 seat, and that meant you had to be going 90 knots forward speed at zero altitude because as the seat came out there was a downward vector of the ejection seat and if, unless you were doing 90 knots um, the parachute wouldn't fully open before you hit the ground. Avionics equipment in the Skyhawk uh, at the time was very electro-mechanical, uh, uh, lots of moving parts, wasn't digital, um, didn't have the uh, any of the sophisticated nav equipment that, that was in the, uh, the update. Uh, nav computer, very basic, two waypoints, clicked over latitudes and longitudes, only good enough for providing a, a general direction back to a base or a target. Uh, wasn't used that much, could be up to 10 miles out after a, an hour's flying. Um, low level flying, we used maps with minute marks on. Low level flight was done at uh, tramp, or low level uh, ingress to a target, 420 knots, seven miles a minute. Um, Later stages uh, in 480 knots, uh, 8 miles a minute. Fuel flows very high at that, uh, those speeds, um, up to uh, 5,000 pounds an hour, even with we without weapons on board. Hang a load of bombs, rockets, or whatever. Um, a lot of drag underneath that fuel flow went up. So the fuel load of a, a single-seater with two tanks on was 9,200 pounds. The uh, twin seater was a thousand pounds less, so you can see that 
those speeds, those fuel flows, the, uh, the fuel didn't go very far, so the low-level portion of the strike was, uh, was quite, uh, quite short. The uh, radar altimeter was one of the more important um, pieces of equipment for us, especially on ship strikes here, as you can see. We used to fly at 50 feet above the sea, um, aiming to get as low or even lower if, uh, as you current, if you had greater courage. The aim was to get as low as possible below the ship's radar horizon, but once you got inside about 20 miles, they had you anyway, but we had no idea of no, that they had because we had no ECM equipment. Um, as well as that, uh, we got very good at looking behind us because we had no radar warning that someone was coming to uh, attack us and uh, we could fly just as well looking behind us 50 to 60 percent of the time with occasional glances forward down the radar altimeter and uh, which we normally set at about 30 feet so if the warning went off we, were, uh, we knew we were getting too low also we'd uh, trim the aircraft nose up so if anything happened and you let go of the stick the aircraft wouldn't uh, would, would climb away from the water it had a basic radar, as you can see from the, the picture there, which is the, uh, the red um, piece of equipment just to the uh, right of the control column. Um, wasn't a weapons release uh, radar, it was a very basic uh, um, uh, ground mapping mode. And it also had a, a slant angle range, which we never used because uh, it meant having your head in the cockpit. Um, in a dive and doing that at 500 knots um, wasn't a particularly uh, uh, wasn't a particularly uh, good thing to do. Um, it, it also had a terrain clearance mode, unlike the, the uh, Skyhawk, the um, F-111 terrain following mode. It supposedly would uh, look ahead and tell us uh, terrain out to about 10 miles ahead of us, um, up to a thousand feet above and below us. Um, we didn't trust this very much, and having seen it in use during the daytime, most of our low-level night navigators were done at a thousand feet above the uh, the terrain or the highest terrain, so that uh, we were we ensured that we were, we were basically safe the whole time. Most valuable um, instrument in the aircraft, just to the left of that, was the AJB3A um, all attitude indicator, or we called it the Abajaba for short. It was a 360-degree um, all that three axis all attitude reference system had magnetic headings on it. You could do aerobatics on it, you just come over the top and it immediately flip over, you could come down very accurate, didn't topple. And um, uh, for instrument flying, for instrument rating tests, um, quick glances at the uh, airspeed indicator and, and altimeter, you didn't really need to look at anything else, it was, it was, it was pretty accurate. Sitting prominently on the glare shield, just to the uh, left of the gun sight is the angle of attack gauge, or donut, as we used to call it. We paid close attention to that uh, during landing. It showed if we were at the correct angle of attack um, for the aircraft's weight, speed, and configuration, because delta wing, if you get behind the drag curve, needs a lot of power um, to overcome that. Heavy aircraft turning on a tight base turn, and I've been in this situation myself. The lift vector is almost horizontal, had almost 100% power in the base turn, um, trying to maintain altitude. Aerodynamic slats, and you'll be able to see those on the uh, aircraft as you uh, walk around it later, um, came out uh, automatically at low speeds which, or uh, at certain load factors. They normally extended simultaneously on approach um, to uh, give you a better 
um, airflow over the wing and the lower speed for landing. Um, however, in some instances they did pop unintentionally and normally it was uh, in the opposite direction that you wanted to go if you're tracking a, a bandit closing for a guns, guns kill the wrong one would pop and flick you over the other way and you'd get away. Uh, another manoeuvre which uh, a mate of mine used on me, I was uh, climbing up underneath him, ready to uh, do a gunshot and he started dumping fuel on me. Um, so uh, not wanting uh, more fuel down the intakes, I bugged out and uh, he got away. So there's another, uh, I learned another valuable trick off him that day. We had a basic uh, flight control system or autopilot. It hardly ever worked, but uh, it was only used for uh, high-level transits. When it did, altitude hold, heading hold, and uh, you, could, you could turn your, uh, your heading around a bit. Just took a bit of the uh, pressure off you at high altitude transits, because uh, um, it was very tiring just to sit there trying to keep the aircraft at uh, straight level all the time. Basic uh, gun sight. Same as, as what uh, was in the early 50s aircraft, it wasn't gyro-stabilised, wasn't connected to a weapons computer, just had an aiming reticule which we manually depressed for the different type of weapons we used. Um, we got very good at uh, intuition, manually changing our sight picture for changes in dive angle, speed, uh, wind on the ground, and uh, since, most we, since in wartime um, you'd only get one pass across the target, we got pretty good at assessing uh, aircraft tracking and and uh, adjustments we had to make. Um, 1475 squadrons uh, competed against themselves annually for a trophy called the McIntyre Trophy, named after one of the uh, um, COs of uh, Ahakia. This was a navigation and bombing trophy, uh, timed around uh, waypoints, losing a second, for, losing points for every second you were um, out of. Uh, over a waypoint and also uh, your time on target and, and distance away from the uh, from the target. Uh, a lot of adrenaline involved in this. Um, quite a few times, pilots would get uh, so involved in dropping their bomb, getting on target, getting on target on time, they'd forget to turn the master weapon switch off or, or on or, or the correct uh, switchology in the cockpit. And they go through the target and one bomb. That would be the end of uh, the squadron's uh, um, chances in the competition. Um, Skyhawk, capable of carrying a variety of weapons, as can be seen uh, in the photo there, and also uh, under the aircraft. We trained for uh, all the roles that uh, other air forces would have uh, separate squadrons for ship strikes, air air gunnery, close air support, ACM, photo reconnaissance, we did escorts. Because we did that and the way we trained, we gained the respect of many uh, other air forces uh, around the world. And the large open tracts of uh, land in New Zealand at the time uh, allowed us to, or uninhabited land, allowed us to fly down to 50 feet AGL up in the uh, centre of the North Island, around the, the mountains, also over the sea. And we were also authorised down to 250 feet on the low level jet routes that crisscrossed the country. When it came to overseas exercises, we were often told we are flying too low and uh, jack it up, guys. Um, but uh, we uh, trained the way that we knew we were going to fly in combat, and, uh, and that, was, uh, that helped us out. And the uh, biggest competition uh, was always with ourselves when we were trying with weapon scores and things like that. Um, always trying to beat the last score. 
Uh, we normally practiced with 25 pound dummy bombs which had a smoke charge in them, but occasionally we'd uh, tasked with uh, dropping 250 pound and 500 pound high explosive bombs. Um, that was normally done at Kaipara Range or Waiuru. Um, basically, because of the danger of those, uh, we couldn't do that at Raumai. Uh, had to avoid flying overhead any towns and uh, loading all those weapons was done on the other side of the airfield away from, from anything else. Quite a few, uh, well, there was a few different uh, dive profiles that we uh, employed in the, uh, the Skyhawk. Um, one was uh, slick, or slick dive bombing from 10, uh, 20 right up to 45 degrees. Uh, the 45 degree profile enabled us to uh, roll in at 10,000 feet, release the weapon at 5,500 feet, which meant the bomb had to drop a mile um, before it hit the ground. So you can imagine uh, uh, the accuracy that we were attempting to uh, attain with our uh, fixed sights. And we got pretty good at it. Um, and uh, you, could, you could get uh, a bomb within uh, 50 metres of a target over a mile. So. Uh, um, practice made perfect. Um, slick bombs had a, uh, they were called slick because as you can see they uh, followed the profile of the aircraft at, at the same speed. Uh, it meant we had to uh, pull out above the, uh, the frag fragmentation pattern which was about uh, 12 to 1500 feet. Um, slick bombs had, were normally armed with a propeller in the nose and uh, a wire was pulled out from the nose of that as the aircraft, uh, as, they, as they were released from the aircraft, uh, the propeller wound up, the fuse was normally 4 to 14 seconds. If we didn't make the right switches and the wire stayed in the, air, in the uh, propeller, bombed in an arm, it meant it didn't go off um, inadvertently under the aircraft either. Low altitude bombing was uh, either done from level at 200 feet or from a 10 degree pass. It was called uh, high drag bombing. This uh, was where fins on the uh, aircraft uh, came out and slowed it down so that it didn't explode underneath the aircraft. Uh, again, fins were opened by a wire that uh, came out from behind the, or came out of the uh, fins as it uh, left the aircraft. It also had a nose fuse which was electrical and uh, again, if you didn't uh, make the right uh, switch selections, the bomb uh, went slick tail didn't open and it uh, meant that uh, the bomb wouldn't explode right underneath you. Here's a picture of a, a Skyhawk flying, uh, firing CRVC-7 rockets. Um, they got those in the, uh, the latter stages of my, my time in, in the, the Air Force. They had a great range, um, they had something like about uh, three or four kilometres range and they were very accurate. We got uh, very good at uh, manual non-computerised bombing. This is a picture of uh, Crow Valley Range at Clark Air Force Base in 1983. That's actually uh, a train uh, yard made of bamboo by the local Philippine workers. And the next score is one of our, well the next photograph is a computerised score from uh, one of our missions there. The call sign of our Kiwi uh, flight at that stage is Bobcat. And as you can see, uh, our target was a petrol dump, and you can just see all the, the, the circles there um, impacting right in the uh, target area. There's two misses from the two aircraft, so our manual bombing got uh, 
all our practice uh, we got very good at and uh, got a lot of kudos from uh, the Americans. In uh, July 1984, the government uh, approved the purchase of 10 A4Gs from the Australian Navy. Um, I flew uh, two transits across. Um, in that one, uh, that was the first four. I'm flying an echelon right in the uh, aircraft that's got the funny paint scheme. Um, we bought uh, six, sorry, uh, eight single-seaters and two twin-seaters. These uh, 10 aircraft are almost identical to uh, the New Zealand A4s, except they didn't have a VHF radio, they didn't have a drag sheet, and as I said, they had the 100% uh, oxygen system. Of note, uh, one of the instructors who gave us our only our wonderful mill ride there for we transited across the Tasman was Lieutenant Mark Binskin. He later became an F-18 uh, instructor and demonstration pilot and uh, is currently the uh, chief of the Australian Defence Forces. Luckily that they arrived in New Zealand about that time because uh, three months later um, Labor won the, uh, the next election and that if the purchase hadn't gone ahead uh, when it did we wouldn't have had them. Uh, upgrading uh, the aircraft uh, started or was proposed in 1994, was finished in 1991. Um, in comparison of the uh, two systems, uh, the left hand side the old cockpit, the right hand side the cargo cockpit, as you can see a head up display, a couple of multi-function displays, weapons computer, it uh, had a radar warning receiver, identification friend or foe, um, Flares and chaff, countermeasures, suspensive system, had hands on throttle and stick, so it was um, up to the very most modern standards. Weapon systems were also upgraded, and to the Maverick, and that's a picture of a test firing Maverick in 1989, and our own nine sidewinders uh, that we uh, had in the old uh, pre Kahu days, they were getting towards the end of their service life, and uh, they were actually uh, fired off. I'd uh, left the service at that stage, unfortunately, so I didn't get to do one. With the arrival of the, uh, the update, a new camouflage scheme was uh, designed, the humps were removed, and uh, here's a picture you can see of uh, the camouflage trials with the old one, bottom left, new one, uh, which you can hardly see in the top right, and then the uh, A4G, Royal Australian Navy colours. Every year there'd be a short deployment, normally to uh, Australia, but there have been ones to Fiji and uh, Rarotonga, and always another long one to Southeast Asia. Prior to uh, my arriving in the squadron, oh sorry, there's an uh, exercise uh, Arctic crawl in 1997 in Williamtown, and prior to my arriving on the squadron, um, they deployed to Hawaii for exercise for Impact 78, that's a picture over Waikiki Beach then. Uh, they went by Fiji, Kwajalein Atoll, and then on to uh, Hawaii. And uh, the last uh, two legs required two air to refuels out of the US uh, Marine Corps Hercules. Some of the deployments I went on were to uh, Singapore and Malaysia for the IADS exercises, and uh, I went twice to Clark Air Base in the Philippines for exercise code Thunder, which is the uh, Pacific equivalent of Red Flag. One of the, uh, the highlights of my uh, Air Force Korea was being one of the senior pilots. I was given the, uh, the job of uh, coordinating and leading a 29-ship multi-aircraft bombing uh, raid at the Crow Valley Range. 
as I said, um, highlight of my career. And that to me, at the end of that uh, exercise of that, that particular mission with one of the exercise staff, and uh, uh, absolutely drenched in sweat, as you probably can see. Next slide, um, Skyhawk escorting a B-52 bomber out of, out of Darwin. The B-52s came from Guam, we were operating out of uh, Darwin um, for exercise kangaroo 84. A couple of uh, mishaps while I was uh, at a harker, but not involving me. Pilot of this particular aircraft uh, didn't do his uh, cockpit pre-flight uh, correctly and started the engine. As soon as the hydraulic pressure got up, the uh, nose wheel started to retract. He immediately put the uh, handle down and didn't stop it coming up. Another one was uh, pilot Ian Walls at uh, Nara and A4G. Without a drag sheet, uh, scooting along the runway, aquaplane flipped over and uh, he managed to uh, squeeze out of a, a very small hole in the uh, cockpit canopy. He wasn't uninjured, but his biggest fear was the aircraft was going to catch fire. Um, the 1982 aerobatic team was led by John Lanham, and they incorporated the previous team's um, manoeuvre, which was the uh, plug barrel roll. Um, Fred Sharp's leading, Steve Pilkington and the uh, receiver aircraft, they wanted to uh, have some shots, see whether it was safe and uh, check out speeds and things. And that's actually a shot that I, that I took from the back seat of uh, T-Bird over Mount Ruapehu. I can uh, tell you that it was quite hard holding a, a big camera trying to get uh, shots of the G-forces pulling it down. Uh, the, 19, oh, sorry, the 1981 team had also done this manoeuvre and uh, while practicing over the base on a Friday evening, Chris Lee and the receiver aircraft accidentally shut the engine down. A group of us were in the bar on a Friday on the Friday night and we were standing outside critiquing the, uh, the display as you would. And we all heard the engine wind down and rushed out to see if we could see what was going to happen. Luckily he got the engine restarted again, but not before he had considered ejecting. And uh, when, he got, when he got back on the ground, they found the uh, lower ejection handle had been partially pulled. Um, he was able to do this because the throttle was also the, the high-pressure fuel cock. As he uh, pulled the throttle back, pressed the speed brake button, he put pressure on it and took it back through the gate. If you put it, he immediately pushed it forward again, hit the igniters, which are also on the, uh, on the throttle there. Engine started immediately and uh, luckily uh, um, saved the uh, aircraft. Um, so we all casually went back to the bar, had another beer and waited for him to come and uh, tell us um, and get the full story. I was also lucky to be in the back seat of the T-Bird. This is not the actual picture, but when they're doing the laser bomb trials, um, they wanted pictures of the uh, bomb coming off and uh, the aircraft following it down. I had a video camera and uh, the pilot, uh, as the bomb came off, he, he rolled inverted and followed it down for as far as he could before pulling out. I can tell you, again, with a video camera trying to um, keep it uh, focused on a bomb while G is being pulled, um, it's quite a difficult uh, undertaking. The only time the Skyhawks have fired an anger was in March 76 when uh, they fired on a Taiwanese fishing boat that was uh, fishing inside the 12 mile limit. Wouldn't stop for one of our trawlers, so uh, 
a group of Skyhawks were sent out with five inch Zuni rockets and, um, and uh, cannon. Uh, threw some low passes across the front of the ship. Captain didn't stop, so um, Flight Lieutenant Jim Jennings was authorised to fire a warning shot across the bow. He did so, two second burst, 53 rounds. The captain knew we meant business and uh, stopped immediately. Twice more, the, um, well, there's the uh, fire of Zuni rockets. Twice more, the uh, aircraft were used uh, to drop weapons other than for practice, or operation to drop weapons other than for practice. Once was when the uh, Tongan uh, fishing, or it wasn't a fishing boat, it was a merchant boat, the Ken Farn, caught fire off Banks Peninsula, so they towed it to uh, out from Kaikoura. Eight Skyhawks went with uh, rockets and bombs. Um, I'm, it's not officially recorded, but I've heard stories that uh, first attacks were level rockets. The rockets had so much energy they went straight through the hull and out the other side and it took all eight Skyhawks to sink the, uh, the boat. Um, multiple hits, but uh, I think uh, the reason it took so many to sink it is they all wanted to have a go, and none wanted to return to the Haki with, with any weapons on board. Second, second time was uh, another fishing boat, the uh, Dong Wong 513 caught fire off the Nien coast in 1994, and the Skyhawks were dispatched to sink that too. I flew in a 14-ship um, uh, Strike Master uh, formation, but this was taken in February 1999 at Nara. Um, six Skyhawks at number 2 Squadron, nine from number 75 at Diamond 15 Flypast. A couple of personal highlights. Um, when I was in the Air Force, I flew a circumnavigation of New Zealand in 6209 there, which I've got uh, 73 hours in. Um, five hours around the top of North Cape, out to East Cape, bottom of the South Island, and back again. Uh, you, you might say, why on earth would you do that? We had to uh, test the long-range tanks if we're going on an overseas deployment, make sure they fed all the fuel. Um, so I just, being the uh, programming or squadron uh, programming officer, I decided that I'd uh, extend my little uh, trip. Took two air-to-air -air refuels. Um, tanks worked perfectly, but uh, getting back on the ground at a heart care, I had a very, very uh, sore bladder. And uh, we did have pee bags. But uh, that was on the side of the ejection seat, and you could hardly grab it, and, and you really had to know where it was. Um, to get it properly, had to unstrap. I wasn't uh, willing to take that risk, so uh, I just held on. The longest unrefueled uh, deployment transit flight I did in the sky was uh, four hours and 20 minutes, and that was from Amberley to sorry, that was from Darwin to Amberley. Um, what a flight time! Four hours 20. Um, Apart from a supersonic run, which has started at 14,000 feet, full power, directly vertical downwards, that's the only way the aircraft would go through the sound barrier. The fastest they had a skyhook up to was 595 knots. It was a, a two-seater, no tanks, pylons only, 50 feet over the sea at uh, Ahakia. Um, that's 1,100 kilometres an hour, but nowhere near Mark 1 at that speed, which is uh, 661 knots. You can say the speed rushes by very quickly at that uh, speed and height. And uh, from there, I decided to see how high it would go, pulled back vertically after getting a clearance, of course, and she topped out at 15,000 feet. Um, because we didn't have a, a greater one-to-one -one, uh, thrust to weight ratio, um, it would decelerate in the, in, the, um, in the climb. January 25th, another milestone, uh, 1995, another milestone for the RNZF. First uh, female fighter pilot, Kelly Moog, completed her uh, Skyhawk solo flight. 
Don't worry, I'm getting, pretty, getting close to the end now. <laughs> Won't go into specific details of crashes, but uh, the total aircraft inventory, seven crashed, three pilots were killed in the 30 odd years we operated them. <laughs> Our Skyhooks were flown by a total of uh, 151 New Zealand pilots, six USAF, four RAF, three Indonesian, two Singaporean, one Malaysian exchange pilot, all whose names are appearing, appear on the uh, picture board behind our, our A4. I left the Air Force in July 1985, amassed 6.40 hours on the Strike Master and 8.60 on the A4 over a period of uh, five years of strike flying. It was a very sad day, December 13, 2001 at Ahakia, when the Air Combat Force was uh, disbanded by the then Labour government, culminated in a fly past of Skyhawks and Mackies and laying up of the squadron standards. Governor-General at the time, Dame Cynthia Cartwright, reviewed the parade. Squadron standards were laid up, as I said, and the Skyhawks were later ferried to Woodburn, where they were covered in plastic, same as when they arrived back in New Zealand, or when they arrived in New Zealand many years before. On a happier note, the government, after many years of uh, trying to sell the remaining Skyhawks and Mackies, decided to gift some to museums and aviation organisations around the country. We have all been pleased to receive Skyhawk 6209 and Mackie 6471 um, to preserve some of our military history. The raiding aircraft were purchased by Jared Isaacman of uh, Dragon International in Florida and with the intention of using them as adversaries for the USAF. It's sad to have seen them go, but uh, pleasing to see that uh, he's got, them, got uh, a lot of them flying again where they belong. In conclusion, Skyhawk was sold to nine countries other than the US, Argentina, Australia, Brazil, Israel, Indonesia, Kuwait, Malaysia, New Zealand and Singapore. Total of 2,405 single-seaters and 555 twin-seaters were produced. Thanks for your attention. Sorry if uh, there's a lot of facts and figures there and uh, I did uh, have to do a fair bit of reading. Um, I'm filling in for someone who couldn't do it and uh, this was put together in short notice. So, any questions? I'll, I'll, be around the whole, I'll be around the whole day and lunchtime if anybody wants to come and chat to me about spiders and, and, and things like that. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.